The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we've assembled a panel of experts to talk about what science does and does not know about medical marijuana. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and today we'll be talking about medical marijuana. On the panel today, we have Dr. David Cassaret, a palliative care physician, health services researcher, and director of hospice and palliative care for the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the author of Stoned, a doctor's case for medical marijuana. Thanks for being here, David. Thanks. Great to be with you. Next, we have Dr. Robert Wolf, a systematic reviewer for Klein and Systematic Reviews Limited, an independent research company based in the UK. He was the co-author of a recent systematic review commissioned by the Swiss Federal Office of Public Health to assess benefits and harms of cannabis for medical use. Good to have you here, Robert. Great to uh, be here. And last, we have Dr. Marcel O. Bond-Miller, Assistant Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. He's dedicated his career to understanding the relations between cannabis use and post-traumatic stress disorder with the aim of informing intervention and prevention strategies. Welcome, Marcel. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so let's clear up some language before we get going. What's the difference between marijuana and cannabis? Because we'll probably be using both terms somewhat interchangeably over the next hour. So this is David. I can I can take a stab at that. Um, cannabis is the technical scientific name for a couple of species, uh, sativa and indica, uh, of plants uh, with which we're all familiar. It got the term marijuana back in the 30s as the U.S. government was trying to dissuade people from using it. Some bright light in the Food and Drug Administration decided that if they gave cannabis a, a scary, exotic-sounding, in this case, uh, Mexican-derived name, it would scare people away. I think not realizing that giving something an exotic name <laughs> actually made it more attractive than than cannabis would have been. But often they're used interchangeably, at least I use them interchangeably, although sticklers for the truth insist that we should we should refer to this as uh, cannabis. Let's maybe start out by talking about the challenges to studying marijuana as a medical treatment. Part of the problem is that, uh, to take the U.S. as an example, is that uh, having that image of, of cannabis, uh, the research is somewhat restricted and limited. Just to give you an uh, example, uh, normally if you conduct research, you get some sort of approval by the Food and Drug Administration, and I believe until June last year for cannabis research, you needed another approval, which was very, very similar by the public health service uh, uh, authorities. And uh, then it moved on and moved on. And finally, obviously, you can't simply grow cannabis in the garden of the of the researcher, uh, but you have to obtain it through the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So all these steps make it a bit harder to, to research on uh, uh, to do research on cannabis than for for other drugs, I believe this this second step, this review by the public health service, has been scrapped by the Obama administration. But maybe the other panelists can uh, comment on that. Yeah, this is Marcel. I, um, public health service review is no longer needed, um, and it was scrapped um, sometime during last year. 
um, but you still need FDA approval, and you're correct in that the marijuana that you obtain has to come from the National Institutes of Drug Abuse. Um, so there's kind of you know one source for the marijuana um, at this point, um, and that's primarily because it's a Schedule One drug in the U.S. at the at the moment. So now I assume that means that there's less people willing to research uh, marijuana for medical use solely because there are so many hoops to jump through. I mean, I think it makes it a bit, di- bit more difficult. Um, I think there are a lot of people that want to do the research, but, you know, there are definitely some, it takes time um, to go through all the approval processes. There are certainly more barriers, that's true, but there's also a lack of funding. Um, you know, without significant pharmaceutical industry funding, as there is for many uh, legal drugs, and without funding, at least in the United States, from the National Institutes of Health, which generally doesn't fund therapeutic research on, on marijuana, it's a combination of those barriers, which really are significant, as well as the lack of funding. And I think many talented researchers who are looking for career opportunities are are going elsewhere just because the barriers are huge and the lack of funding is a significant barrier as well. Hopefully that'll change, but right now it's it's a significant impediment. Okay, well, there's a lot of hype around what medical marijuana can and cannot do. So let's let's break it down for people and, and talk about some specific illnesses and conditions, and we'll see what the research actually says about it. So a- according to the studies that have been done, does medical marijuana work as a treatment for uh, starting with chronic pain? Chronic pain is fortunately where we have probably the most or close to the most amount of evidence for um, that has been done on medical marijuana um, or marijuana broadly in terms of specific conditions. And um, what we see is that, you know, pretty consistent documentation that it helps um, with chronic pain. Um, there's some question about the degree to which it helps, you know, how big of a change um, does it make in chronic pain? And again, when we talk about this, um, it, marijuana is really um, heterogeneous in that there's lots of different, you know, marijuana is not marijuana is not marijuana. And so I think just throwing it out there in the beginning as we talk about this is that um, there's so there's lots of different kind of ingredients or components to marijuana and variations in those ingredients or components have vastly different effects. Um, and so you can have marijuana A that has that causes anxiety and marijuana B that reduces anxiety, all simply because of these different components. And so a lot of the science that's been done, including in chronic pain, has tried to drill down in terms of what specific cannabinoids or what specific um, constituents of the cannabis plant provide relief from pain versus others. So then for chronic pain, uh, give me an example. What is the most effective kind then? Right now, the research seems to um, be really focusing on THC. So um, Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol is um, kind of the primary, what you think of as a psychoactive ingredient in cannabis. And that's that's been shown to have some pain um, relief properties. Um, And so, again... There are lots of different, you know, I think over a hundred different cannabinoids or constituents of the cannabis plant. And so in this way, we think about it as, you know, cannabis that would have high levels of tetrahydrocannabinol relative to other cannabinoids. 
if I could interrupt, this is mm-hmm. David. I have a slightly different perspective, which is not meant to be argumentative, but it might lead to some interesting discussion. You know, I, I've looked at the data for chronic pain. I've actually been underwhelmed by the strength of those data. What's impressed me really has sure. been one subset of, of chronic pain, which is neuropathic pain. So that's pain due to nerve damage. And it seems to me that that's where a lot of the interesting research has been done, which is not to say it doesn't work for chronic pain. It's just, it seems to work really well for that subset. And that's partly because that's where the studies have been done. There are a lot of effective treatments for chronic pain due to osteoarthritis, for instance. Tylenol works well. But neuropathic pain, pain due to nerve damage, is really hard to treat. And so there's been a lot of interest in in marijuana for that particular subset of chronic pain. And for that particular subset, there certainly has been, as you heard, uh, interest in THC. But there are some researchers like Barth Wilsey at uh, University of California, Davis, who's very interested in in cannabidiol, CBD, the non-psychoactive component or one of the non-psychoactive components of marijuana. And he's been doing trials, gradually pushing down the THC concentration of marijuana and increasing the CBD concentration and finding that CBD without the psychoactive effects may have just as much pain relief effect as, as THC does. So again, that's not chronic pain in general, one specific subset, but there's some interesting opportunities there for research down the road, which a lot of people, including me, are very excited about. Well, that actually makes me even yeah. more curious about study design. Like, how, how does one study this? You said in your introduction that I was involved in a systematic review um, we, we conducted last year. And uh, probably most of your listeners are familiar with what a systematic review is. Some might not. That's why I uh, explain it briefly. It's basically a process where we define a research question and try to identify all the relevant papers answering this this research question. And so we were asked by, by ultimately the Swiss government to look into 10 different indications for cannabis, and uh, that included chronic pain. And uh, we looked at what is called uh, 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 randomized controlled trials, uh, which are supposed to be the best and most robust uh, evidence that you can find out there, the best uh, study design. Uh, and actually, overall, for all these 10 indications, we found nearly 80 trials, and uh, 28 of those were in chronic pain. Pain. So that uh, confirms what uh, I think it was Marcel uh, said earlier, that there is quite a lot of research done. Um, it is fairly uh, okay research. It's not overwhelmingly good. So there are some, some limitations with the research, but it is fairly robust and it really points at the direction that uh, cannabis might have some uh, effect uh, on chronic pain. Uh, compared to placebo, and especially, as uh, David said, uh, for neuropathic pain. I agree on that one. But uh, as as it was said before, there are different uh, substances out there, and uh, yeah, they, they have obviously different effects. Desiree, you asked earlier about the design of these trials, which is really fascinating. So one thing that's important to know is that you can get placebo marijuana. I never thought that was possible before I started researching this book, but you can actually take marijuana cannabis and you can extract THC, CBD, other cannabinoids in much the same way that you extract caffeine from coffee beans, usually using liquid CO2. And you can create a marijuana joint or other form that looks, smells, tastes just like real marijuana, but doesn't have those cannabinoids in it. 
And so many studies, including studies of, of marijuana for neuropathic pain and other conditions, use placebo marijuana joints, which subjects smoke. One big challenge to those studies, though, interestingly, is that many of those studies enroll research subjects who are already using marijuana medically because they believe it works for them. So they know what to expect. And you heard from Robert that many of these trials are not perfect methodologically, and that's one reason. Because when you have research subjects who know what marijuana does for them, they can recognize a placebo really pretty quickly. So you get people who are using medical marijuana because they think it helps them. They're enrolled in what's in theory a blinded placebo-controlled trial, but they know what they're getting. And that makes it very difficult sometimes to interpret the results because it's placebo-controlled, but it's not blinded or not perfectly blinded. I agree with uh, what David just uh, said. Interestingly, though, um, you find quite a lot of the adverse effects of uh, cannabinoids in, in the uh, people that took uh, placebo marijuana. So you have people who are uh, of euphoric or, or, or whatever uh, after they had only placebo, which is obviously quite interesting. Sure. I have fond memories of, of uh, smoking what was in theory marijuana in high school, but which turned out to be oregano. And it was really quite fun uh, until I was disabused of, of that notion. So yeah, the power of suggestion is really quite powerful. You're listening to Science for the People. And today's episode is all about the efficacy and safety of medical marijuana. I'm joined by Dr. Marcel Obon Miller, who studies the relations between cannabis use and post-traumatic stress disorder. Dr. Robert Wolf, co-author of a recent systematic review that assessed the benefits and harms of cannabis for medical use, and Dr. David Cassarat, author of Stoned, a doctor's case for medical marijuana. Okay, so what does the research say about insomnia and sleep disorders? There's much less evidence. So if we talk about kind of stepping back, as, as we have been about, you know, kind of where the evidence lies and where the primary studies are, um, I would say the primary research that we just talked about in chronic pain or pain-related or neuropathic pain. Insomnia, on the other hand, and sleep problems, there's significantly less. Um, and really what it shows um, is that a lot of individuals use cannabis for sleep, primarily for um, inducing sleep. So there are different components, right? So you think about um, you know, like how fast you can fall asleep versus how many times you wake up in the middle of the night, the quality of your sleep. You know, there are lots of different components that you can look at in terms of sleep. Um, but it appears that people are primarily using for sleep induction, um, you know, to kind of combat insomnia. And it appears at this point that cannabidiol, so CBD, um, seems to have potentially the most benefit there. Um, but again, the work is so so much in its infancy at this point that we really can't concretely say a whole lot <laughs> at this point. This is David. I'm actually a little bit more optimistic. I, I agree absolutely with Marcel's summary of the literature, although I, I come at this from a slightly different perspective. As a palliative care physician, when my patients have sleep problems, they often have sleep problems because of other symptoms. It's nausea or pain or muscle spasms that's preventing them from sleeping. And there's actually more data, I think, not great evidence, but recent evidence that in situations where people have, for instance, pain, neuropathic pain, or muscle spasms, particularly in the setting of multiple sclerosis, that are preventing them from sleeping, that marijuana can be helpful. So that's that's obviously not the, the main reason uh, why people experience symptoms of insomnia worldwide. 
it's a fairly special case. But there's some interesting trials, particularly, as I said, of marijuana or cannabinoids for muscle spasms and pain and multiple sclerosis um, that were designed to assess the impact of marijuana on muscle spasms, but found as a sort of side effect that people were sleeping better. So I think for people whose symptoms are keeping them awake, particularly when those symptoms might respond to, um, to cannabinoids, there's actually more evidence there. Not a lot, but more evidence. I can add to that, Robert, here. Um, Interestingly, of the 24,000 studies we looked at uh, in, in, in the course of our systematic review, there was only one study that really studied sleep disorders as, as the main focus of the study. Uh, it showed some positive effect for uh, a particular drug called Nabilone. Um, however, we also looked at, um, and that is something David just uh, su suggested, that uh, it might be a positive, so to speak, positive side effect of, of uh, other indications if you take uh, some sort of uh, cannabis uh, product for, let's say, specificity in uh, multiple sclerosis, um, that it might help there. And we found 11 studies uh, where that was the case, where the main focus was uh, another disease, not sleep disorder, uh, but it showed that it had some positive influence on, on sleep disorder. However, here the, the evidence is relatively weak and uh, uh, mainly because it was not the main focus and because the studies were fairly small. And when we say fairly small, what does that mean? How small? Uh, uh, the numbers here, I mean, the, the one study that uh, studied sleep disorders as the main focus had 22 patients. Okay. And obviously, it's uh, really, really quite small. Um, the other 11 studies I mentioned there, they had roughly 2,000 uh, patients combined. So that's uh, a decent size, I would say. So now I have a question about medical marijuana used as an appetite stimulant. Uh, we all know that works. Anybody who has ever smoked pot knows that works. So, uh, but why? Why does it make you hungry? Is, what's the mechanism? This is, this is David. I'll, I'll uh, weigh in mostly to demonstrate my ignorance and I think ignorance of the field in general. I'm not really sure we know. There have been some interesting studies looking at various appetite-related hormones um, like uh, growth hormone and others that tend to change after meals and seem to be involved in appetite regulation. There do seem to be some effects. Some of those hormones go up and go down. Whether those are actually causative in changing appetite, nobody really knows. As far as we can tell, though, the big uh, appetite-related hormone, which is insulin, as near as you can tell in the studies that I've reviewed, doesn't seem to be affected by marijuana use. That's the one you would expect to be associated with changes in appetite or potentially weight gain. And although the, the data are limited, there doesn't seem to be a huge effect there. So I guess I'm putting brackets around this question because I'm not sure we really know yet. And just to be clear, um, use of marijuana does seem to, or cannabinoids seems to be associated with increased appetite doesn't seem to be associated with weight gain in the setting of chronic serious illness. So many people with cancer or AIDS develop a, a muscle wasting syndrome of cachexia uh, associated with weight loss. Um, cannabinoids can be helpful in increasing appetite, which helps some of my patients to feel more normal because they can participate in, in meals and they can eat, but it won't necessarily help them to, to gain weight. Now, this is interesting to me. Would Could we say that, that across the board, we're not quite sure 
exactly how marijuana works? Is is that in every area or is that only in appetite stimulation? I don't think it's only in appetite stimulation, but I don't think also it's in every area. Um, I think for certain conditions, we know a lot more in terms of mechanisms of action than others. Would you guys agree? Uh, yes, uh, Robert here. I would agree with that. And just to add to uh, what David just said, we actually looked at appetite stimulation in, in one particular area. Um, that was HIV, AIDS and infected uh, uh, people. And actually, we found four studies here, again, relatively small, but they seem to indicate that might be uh, some, some weight gain. Uh, but it didn't seem to, to be as big as uh, with the standard drugs you, you would use in that area. So probably not the, the area where I put uh, most uh, trust and, and uh, excitement uh, to. This is David. I, I'm actually really impressed at how little we know about how medical marijuana works. There, there is some data about mechanisms. I would definitely agree to that. But in the United States, it's legal now in 23 states, um, is on varied ballot initiatives in another half dozen at least. Uh, there are a lot of people using this stuff uh, in the United States alone and, and worldwide. And so given that, it's really impressive to me how many basic unanswered questions there are. Even neuropathic pain, which we talked about a while ago, everybody thought that it was THC that was effective in treating neuropathic pain may turn out that it's mostly CBD or there's some synergistic effect. So even basic questions like that, which cannabinoid helps with which symptom we're beginning to figure out. Um, so there certainly are some things that we know, but there's a, a whole lot more that we're just beginning to figure out. And I think the science of marijuana, of cannabinoids, and our natural innate endocannabinoid system, the hormones that we all have in us that mimic some of the effects of marijuana or vice versa, I think will be a really hot area of, of research and probably pharmaceutical development over the next five or 10 years. Uh, Robert here, I completely agree with David there. And just uh, to, to add to that, I was invited to a radio show last year in uh, one state in the, in the US, and they recently introduced uh, uh, or licensed uh, medical marijuana for uh, glaucoma. And the presenter of that show asked me, um, what do you think about that? And I was like, well, we had one study in, in, in that condition uh, with uh, six patients, <laughs> one study with six patients, and they make a decision to introduce it uh, on a statewide uh, level. And I think that that is a point I would make as a scientist uh, involved in these, these reimbursement decisions and uh, licensing decisions, that it is, in my view, quite important to really generate enough evidence that we can be confident enough to, to make decisions and to introduce it and to, to give it to people that we know as much as we can about the, the positive effects and, of course, also about the uh, potentially negative uh, ne negative effects that are uh, associated with cannabis. Okay, we, can we go back one second? Are you telling me that we have based all our decisions about using medical marijuana for glaucoma off of six people? Um, well, that uh, I, I told you earlier that we looked at uh, so-called randomized controlled trials, but right. That is not unusual. So if, if you look at uh, how the FDA works or uh, other uh, agencies like uh, NICE in the UK, they will look at uh, the best available evidence or the, the, the uh, best evidence and that are usually randomized controlled trials. And well, uh, for glaucoma, I can confidently say there is not much out there. Fascinating. I had no idea. Um, so, Marcel, I would love to hear about your research on uh, medical marijuana and PTSD. Sure. Um, <laughs> there's, there's not a whole lot at the moment. Um, 
There have not, there's been no randomized controlled trials, as was just discussed, as kind of the gold standard of what we um, think of in terms of um, scientific evidence um, for, you know, uh, treatment. There has been no randomized controlled trials of marijuana for PTSD. That's changing now. Um, we're doing this work and um, we're starting up a few randomized controlled trials so that we can, you know, that are rigorously designed so that we can answer these questions about PTSD. But at the moment, there nothing's been published um, on this. And so really, I mean, the majority of the work has actually focused on negative consequences um, for folks with PTSD who use cannabis. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's pretty much an anecdotal report. There have been a couple studies that have shown some initial mechanisms of action, some initial very small, um, you know, a paper on 10 people here, a paper on 10 people there that have looked at certain synthetic cannabinoids um, on PTSD symptoms. But really, I mean, this kind of gets back to what was just discussed before about glaucoma. PTSD, and it changes now a lot because it's been added. It started in New Mexico. So for U.S. states that specifically have it, New Mexico was the first. Um, and I think now we're up to, I want to say, nine um, states that have PTSD specifically listed as a condition. But we don't have a single randomized controlled trial that has shown that cannabis works or what cannabis specifically um, is beneficial for individuals with PTSD. There's a huge this is gap there. This is David. That, that's been fascinating to me, that, that seven-state statistic. The fact that some states uh, have approved its use and others haven't. So according to the state of California, right. for instance, um, marijuana is effective for PTSD, but you go 500 miles east to Colorado and it's no longer effective. That's like saying penicillin works for an infection in Boston and in Dubuque, but not in Miami. It really is crazy. And it has a lot to do, I think, with um, the lobbying that goes on and at least in the United States and how sometimes uh, conditions can be added to state lists because of sometimes only a handful of a very, very vocal proponents. That's not really good science. That's legislation. <laughs> legislation is not science, but it's led to some very, very right. weird uh, coincidences and confusion. In Colorado, um, there have been, I think, three attempts um, at the Colorado legislature level to get PTSD added to the list of conditions, and it's been shot down every time because of lack of evidence, uh, lack of sufficient evidence at this point. So, you know, I think that, you know, there's consistent lobbying going on across the board, but different states have their kind of, what they're deciding is their um, cut points for evidence to add conditions to their lists. Robert here. I mean, I think it was mentioned earlier that funding is a, a problem in this, this area. And I wonder, uh, maybe a question for uh, Marcel and for David. Do you think it would be good if uh, indeed the government would put more funding uh, into this just to to uh, really generate more evidence to, to make better decisions? Absolutely. So uh, this is Marcel. I say this is where funding is a huge issue. I mean, you know, we've been seeing it because in, in typically, um, like the National Institutes of Drug Abuse, they're the National Institutes of Drug Abuse, right? So they're really focusing on kind of negative consequences of substance use um, rather than therapeutic potential. That may be shifting, but at the moment, that's really where their focus is lied. And so, for you know, we have um, two randomized controlled trials of cannabis for PTSD going on right now, um, and they're all funded by really alternative sources. Um, the primary one is being funded by the state of Colorado, actually. Um, 
but not a typical source that you would go seek funding for, and, and it was kind of a rare instance that they even provided funding for, for such an endeavor. So um, it's tricky, for sure. And a lot of times you have to you know, rely on donations or nonprofits or other kind of alternative funding mechanisms, which are hard because these are expensive studies to do. Um, you know, our randomized controlled trial for PTSD is, you know, over $2 million study. Um, and, you know, it's hard to come up with that amount of money from alternative sources. This is David. I'm actually optimistic that we're going to see some progress. Uh, we're, as many of you probably know, are in the middle of an election cycle down here in the United States. And uh, one thing that I think a lot of the candidates can probably agree on is that more research is needed. That's that's a pretty easy platform plank to put in place. Um, it doesn't require a candidate to go on the record as being for or against medical marijuana but simply calls for more research are pretty harmless. And so I expect that we're going to see more of those sorts of calls from candidates on both sides of the aisle going into our election cycle. Whether that actually turns into policy changes once people are elected is, of course, up for grabs. But I think there is a lot of interest right now in Washington in research, both on potential benefits and risks. And that will only help to, to make that research easier, hopefully, uh, as Marcel said, with increased funding. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more medical marijuana on Science for the People. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I've been talking with a group of experts about what the evidence says about the efficacy of medical marijuana. With me today is Dr. Robert Wolf, co-author of a recent systematic review that assessed the benefits and harms of cannabis for medical use. Dr. David Cassaret, author of Stoned, A Doctor's Case for Medical Marijuana. And Dr. Marcel Obon Miller, who studies the relations between cannabis use and post-traumatic stress disorder. So let's talk about uh, the big one. Uh, we hear a lot about this, uh, mostly on Facebook, but I'm very curious. Uh, cancer. What do the studies say about uh, treating cancer with medical marijuana? First, I think there, there are really two answers to that question. One is that there's a huge amount of hype out there. In fact, when I was re researching the book Stoned, I wound up talking with a woman who had a, an eminently treatable form of lymphoma. She was in her early 40s. She had a 95% cure rate, but was having a difficult time with chemotherapy side effects, heard about so-called cannabis oil. Um, that she heard offered anti-tumor effects and swore off her chemotherapy, uh, decided not to go for a bone marrow transplant, and put all of her hope in this cannabis oil, and she died a couple months before the book went to press. So there's a lot of this hype that is really endangering a lot of, of patients. So the one answer to that question is, as far as we know right now, it doesn't work, at least not enough for anybody to put all of their hopes in. On the other hand, the second answer is there is a little bit of science there. 
So if you look at the way that cannabinoids like THC and CBD affect tumor cells in test tubes and cell culture, there's good evidence that cannabinoids slow down cell growth, decrease the rate at which those cells extend out into other tissue. Um, cannabinoids can decrease the formation of new blood vessels, which help tumors to grow. So there's a lot of or a fair amount of test tube evidence that suggests that the cannabinoids in marijuana might have some therapeutic effect down the road. But for people right now to put their hopes solely in cannabis or cannabis oil for the treatment of cancer is really, really not wise and potentially dangerous. Uh, Robert here, just to add to that, uh, we looked at uh, in the systematic view at uh, people who are suffering from nausea and vomiting uh, as as part of their chemotherapy tr uh, the treatment for cancer. And we found three studies that uh, suggested that there might be uh, some effect. But of course, this is only a symptom of cancer, uh, not a, a study on uh, cure for cancer. So I would agree with uh, what David just said. Well, maybe we should talk for a moment about uh subjective symptoms versus cures. Can we say across the board that marijuana is more effective for treating subjective symptoms that it, than it is for actually curing diseases? Is that, or is that incorrect? This is David. I guess I would say that based on the data that we have now and the kinds of studies that have been done to date, virtually all of which have been on symptoms, yeah, I think that's where the weight of the evidence is. Keep in mind, though, that the cannabinoids in marijuana work by hacking their way into the so-called endocannabinoid system that we all have in us. Um, and there are probably a lot of roles that that endocannabinoid system has uh, on tumor growth regulation, potentially endocrine function, certainly the immune system. Um, so there may be effects potentially curative or real disease-modifying effects of cannabinoids, particularly on autoimmune diseases that we'll discover down the road. It's just that those studies really haven't been done yet. We're, we're right now, I think, reaching for the low-hanging fruit, um, looking for effects of whole plant marijuana, for the most part, on symptoms. Um, I expect to see in the next five or 10 years some interesting research on cannabinoids, both naturally occurring and synthetics, as disease-modifying treatments uh, for some conditions like multiple sclerosis, lupus, other autoimmune diseases. We may shift that balance of evidence, and we may have a very different conversation five or 10 years from now. But right now, most of the evidence that I'm aware of comes in, in subjective symptoms. Robert, did you want to add anything to that? No, I would uh, agree with what David said. I mean, uh, the the questions we were uh, commissioned to to answer were pretty much around uh, lowering symptoms, and uh, it it shows that for for some of these uh, conditions, it has some potential. But uh, obviously, uh, a bit more research is is needed to understand what the mechanism are, mechanisms are and and uh, how it, how it, how it really works in in practice. And uh, just to, to add to what I said earlier, um, I mean, I'm a strong advocate of randomized controlled trials because they are supposed to deliver the best available evidence. However, we heard earlier they are quite expensive, sometimes hard to do, sometimes hard to find enough patients for them. And of course, uh, you can also use other sources of evidence. So, for example, if you license a drug somewhere in the state, then of course it would be good to follow up on that and to, to look for side effects in, in the long term, for example. 
Um, but I think it should should really be assessed with the same standard as for for other drugs. Now, one of the things that that we haven't actually mentioned so far is uh, the effectiveness of medical marijuana. Uh, how dependent is it on the delivery system? For example, you know, smoking versus pills. You know, there have been studies that have looked at kind of differences in delivery systems, um, and you know, some delivery systems are similar in terms of effect, like smoking it through traditionally like out of a bowl or a a joint and vaporizing it have similar kind of immediate effects um, on it. Whereas eating um, a cannabis product, for example, you know, kind of like a think about brownie infused with cannabis or whatever has a much different profile in terms of the time to um, getting the effects and dosage um, or the ability to, to dose accurately. Um, and so, you know, it's a definitely an important consideration. Um, and, you know, if, if you think about kind of delivery methods, smoking, though not kind of typically what you would think of as a gr- good way to deliver a medicine, um, actually has a very quick and, and good delivery method in terms of getting it into your blood um, versus eating it, which has to, you know, an, an edible product has to go through your gut. Um, there's a you know hours before you know at least an hour and a half to two hours before you actually feel an effect, which makes it really hard to dose, um, and the effect usually lasts longer. Um, and so you know definitely important consideration, but more work needs to be done for sure in that area. Well, have studies been done specifically into the effect in, into the effectiveness of different delivery methods? Uh, I'm I'm not aware of uh, any study in, in that field. I mean, what I would point out is that obviously. Obviously, with eating stuff or uh, even inhaling stuff uh, like uh, smoking stuff, it is hard to get the dosage right. So in in that sense, I think uh, probably drug uh, companies, if they uh, research that, will be more likely to look into some sort of pills or oils or maybe even new forms of delivery like uh, transdermal, so in in forms of patches or uh, something like that, where it might be a bit easier to to control the dose. But I'm not uh, aware of any studies uh, really looking into uh, different different, uh, different delivery methods. This is David. I, I agree that the, the, the path that Robert is, is pointing out for standardizing dosing and delivery is probably one the pharmaceutical industry is likely to take, probably is already. On the other hand, I, I've talked with a lot of patients who have turned to medical marijuana because they want a sense of control. They want to be able to choose what they use, when they use, how they use it, um, many of them, by the way, turn to smoking or vaporizing because they have, as Marcel pointed out, um, a very immediate, almost minute by minute uh, way to to change their doses. And so, although I think the pharmaceutical industry would love to know that this patient is getting exactly 2.5 milligrams of THC, I think what matters to a lot of patients is not what dose they're getting necessarily, but how that dose makes them feel, whether it makes them feel better, and what they can do in five or 10 minutes to change that dose so they feel better. So my sense is that a lot of people turn to smoking or vaporizing because they really love that sense of control and may actually be resistant to edibles or pills or transdermal delivery systems that are exactly the sort of prescription medication that many patients are are rebelling against when they seek out medical marijuana in the first place. It'll be interesting to see how that pans out in the next four or five years. Now, are there other conditions that medical marijuana has shown to to provide assistance with that haven't been mentioned? And I'm not talking anecdotally. Do we have studies? 
Yeah, definitely one area that's received a lot of attention um, is multiple sclerosis and muscle spasticity. Um, I don't think we've discussed that at this point, and that's um, primarily driven by some drug companies that do work in this area um, or specifically develop drugs for this, cannabis-based drugs. Um, there's a, there's a decent amount of evidence. I mean, I can't speak to the, I mean, we've done some systematic re- reviews, but probably not as in-depth um, as ones that have been conducted by other um, folks. Have, yeah, I can't speak to it more broadly, but my understanding is that there's been a bit that's been done there. Yes, definitely MS. It's uh, something I would have mentioned as well. So we found 14 studies in, in that area and actually relatively uh, good quality evidence that, that it has some effects in lowering the uh, symptoms of specificity and I've, I've, yeah, so that, that's what we found. Although this is David, I, I just got back uh, about a month ago from a, a book tour in the UK where uh, the National Health Service does in limited situations pay for the drug that has been developed, Sativex, which is a, a combination of naturally derived THC and CBD. And the, the two things I heard loud and clear from many patients, including many MS patients is number one, it's very, very hard to get uh, and uh, its cost is prohibited for for many of them. Uh, Number one. And number two, honestly, many of them told me that they like smoking or vaporizing because it's more effective for them. So there's a perception among many of the the patient advocates I met with that Sativex does have some evidence backing it up and that's nice, but they really view it as a, a sort of dumbed down and uh, made palatable for for regulatory authorities' version of marijuana that's not as effective as it could be. Again, getting back to this idea that I think there's some pushback against the medical establishment and some of the appeal of medical marijuana is that it's not medical. It doesn't come in a jar from a pharmacy, um, which is something I think the pharmaceutical industry will have to figure out how to get around if it wants to get into this game too. Uh, Robert here. Interestingly, uh, I I, uh, was invited for an interview with the uh, BBC here in the UK uh, a couple of weeks ago and they had a whole morning show dedicated to this this uh, topic of medical marijuana and they had a lot of people calling in saying they actually get medical mar- or get marijuana not medical marijuana to to lower the symptoms of chronic pain and uh, to help with their uh, MS and mind you it is illegal in in the UK so that tells you uh, how how driven some of these patients must must be that they go uh, and and get the marijuana even despite the legal uh, status. This is Science for the People, and I've been discussing medical marijuana with Dr. David Cassarat, author of Stoned, a doctor's case for medical marijuana, Dr. Marcel Obon Miller, who studies the relations between cannabis use and post-traumatic stress disorder, and Dr. Robert Wolf, co-author of, co-author of a recent systematic review that assessed the benefits and harms of cannabis for medical use. Okay, so we've spent a lot of time covering the efficacy angle, uh, but what do the studies say about safety. This is Marcel. I can talk a little bit to this. Um, you know, this is the, the flip side and this is, you know, I get emails almost daily from, <laughs> from folks that, you know, argue or, you know, have pointed comments to me about, you know, kind of the consequences associated with cannabis use, but they're there. And um, again, not like any other substance, not for everybody. Um, a lot of people use marijuana and don't have any problems, but there's a segment of the population that get addicted to marijuana. Um, it is addictive, pr- primarily driven by THC, the primary psychoactive component. Um, and, and, and when we talk about, you know, it being addictive, really, you know, that means that when individuals try to stop, 
for example, they experience withdrawal um, and, you know, have, you know, lots of negative withdrawal symptoms, including pretty bad sleep difficulties and disturbing dreams and anger and irritability and all sorts of different things. Um, but we're also talking about, you know, needing more of the drug to get the same effect, craving it during times when you don't have it. Really what you think of, is, you know, in terms of addiction of, of a lot of other different substances, but that's there and that's a real um, consideration when thinking about, you know, medical cannabis. Um, and a lot of people just don't, you know, they use it so often um, that they don't even know. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I've had, I don't know, countless conversations with individuals that um, have said, you know, oh, yeah, I use marijuana four or five times a day. Um, and it's great. And, you know, I don't know why you're talking about all these negative things. And I said, well, you know, what would happen if you tried to stop for one reason or another? And they like, you know, look at me like I'm cross-eyed and, um, and, and say, you know, why would I stop? Or I don't think I could do that. And it's like, well, you know, that's something to consider is like how dependent you are on this drug. And, you know, is this something that you want to be using for the rest of your life? Or is this something that, you know, is something short-term or, you know, potentially trying to treat something and then move on to something else? So definitely something to consider. Robert here. Well, like with all the other drugs that are out there, of course there are side effects. I mean, you you uh, with every drug you you have side effects, and uh, if you compare cannabis even with placebo, um, you have side effects. Some of them are more severe. You get euphoria, you get hallucinations, uh, you get all the things you would expect from from cannabis. And that would be one reason uh, where I would say as a, as a doctor, my personal opinion, that uh, yes, cannabis has the potential to be a useful drug for certain diseases, but ideally it should be monitored by uh, some health professional to uh, be there to uh, see these symptoms and ideally help uh, with these symptoms if they, if they occur. This is David. I, I think it's important to point out, although marijuana definitely does have both short and long-term risks and may turn out to have more risks risks as we learn more about it. The risk of cognitive impairment is, I think, still up in the air, but may turn out to be real down the road. But it's important to balance those risks against the risks of other medications that are out there. I've talked to a lot of patients who have turned to medical marijuana because of the risks and side effects of legal prescription medications thereon, um, opioids first and foremost. Many patients who uh, are on opioids for neuropathic pain find that they don't work well. They make them feel goofy and sleepy, cause side effects like nausea and constipation. I've talked to a lot of patients who have turned to medical marijuana so they can stop using opioids. And in fact, there's some uh, data from states that have legalized uh, marijuana in the United States that have found that opioid-related overdose deaths go down after legalization, potentially, because at least some patients are switching from opioids to, to marijuana. That might be an extreme case, but as we think about those risks of, of marijuana, we should also think about the risks of the drugs that people would be using if they weren't using medical marijuana, um, which can be as significant or sometimes more so. I agree completely with what uh, you just said, David, and uh, I think that that is exactly the reason why I would like to see more more research done and uh, even if it's uh, legalized somewhere or allowed somewhere follow up have registries uh, know about these these side effects that you have data to really inform the debate and to to really know what you are up against and uh, if if benefits really outweigh the harm know 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 the stuff Marcel I also completely agree and there's been some really interesting work by um, folks up in Canada actually uh, Philippe Lucas and some folks in the US like Amanda Ryan who've done you know kind of documented some of this substance replacement or subs or substitution if you will where people are 
um, you know, traditionally using, you know, numbers of uh, traditional prescription medications and then switching to marijuana because of reduced side effect profiles or, or things like that. So I think it's um, definitely some important work needs to be done in that area in terms of, you know, comparative efficacy and, you know, which means, you know, do we know if you're on, you know, X number of sleep medications and then you switch to marijuana, is marijuana treating your sleep as well or not compared to these sleep medications? Um, but also, right, importantly, trying to understand palatability and um, and side effects for individuals as well. So very important work needs to be done in that area. We also need to be very careful, I think, about addiction. Marcel's points are, are well taken. Fifteen years ago, many physicians, including myself, argued that we are were under-treating pain and we needed to be more liberal in prescribing opioids for the treatment of chronic pain. And that has led over the last 15 years or so to increased opioid prescribing, lots of people now addicted to OxyContin and other painkillers. Um, and then as the reins are, are tightened on those prescribing practices, moving to drugs like heroin with resultant opioid overdoses. I mean, all that was caused arguably because a group of well-meaning healthcare providers um, with some support from the pharmaceutical industry um, decided that we needed to do a better job at, at treating pain and that the risk of addiction were significant, but not enough to prevent uh, prescribing for people who were suffering. Um, the risks of marijuana are not, I think, as significant. Certainly, there's no risk of a fatal overdose from marijuana. You can't fatally overdose on the stuff. So, there's not that risk. But there is, uh, I think, a more broad risk that we might repeat some of the same mistakes that we made 15 or 20 years ago by encouraging use without thinking about some of those downstream consequences of addiction. And so this is Marcel speaking. I just, um, and with that, and, and um, the work I do kind of with clinicians and practitioners, it's super important just to, I mean, like, like you would with any prescription drug, right? You want to monitor side effects and you want to monitor, and this was just talked about before, you know, you know and there are easy tools to do that. Um, and just to monitor like addiction um, and these sorts of things over time to make sure that um, folks aren't going down a bad path um, within use of the substance. And, you know, you really don't want to, um, it's kind of a balance, right? Because it's not a traditional prescription medication, but you really don't want to treat it um, a whole lot differently in terms of, you know, from a, a practitioner standpoint. So you've you've all sort of touched on it about uh, funding issues and the I guess the the inability of people to pass those those regulations. But what what does the future of medical marijuana ideally look like to you in terms of funding? Or sorry, in terms of everything, sir. Well, Robert here. I think I, I said um, uh, a couple of times before. I think what is needed is really more research. I know funding is an issue. We touched on that, but ideally, you would like to see the same level of quality research uh, done for cannabis as for all the other drugs. But that means, of course, that you should demystify, I hope that's the right word, um, the the cloud that is around cannabis uh, and all the legal issues because it is, at the end of the day, it is just uh, a potentially uh, new drug that could be added to what the doctors have available to treat their patients. 
And you should keep in mind that uh, nowadays it is fairly rare to have complete game changes, uh, uh, new drugs that really change uh, the field completely. And I think cannabis might uh, be able to to add a small change for uh, well a lot uh, uh, a big change for for uh, uh, quite a few patients, but overall small change that you have more drugs available, you have one additional treatment options. And uh, what I could imagine is that in the future people will research more and more not only THC or CBD both of which uh, we have mentioned earlier but other compounds that are part of, of marijuana I think there are over 150 or something uh, compounds in uh, marijuana and I think some of them are not well researched or understood and I think that will uh, probably happen in future. Yeah I would just completely agree there I think really what we need is more research um, and a ton of it. And it's hard because this is a, a substance that's being considered for so many conditions. So you need research on pain, you need research on PTSD, you need research on MS, you need research on all these different conditions. And that's, you know, makes the task a, a formidable one. Um, and, you know, with that, we definitely need a, a lot of money um, to be able to do such research. Um, so that's really, I think, where where things need to go. This is David. I would add to all of that, that in addition to research on potential benefits and development of registries so we can track outcomes, side effects and risks, I also hope we'll see much more basic science research. I think it's great to figure out whether marijuana helps patients with PTSD or nausea or neuropathic pain. That needs to be a priority. But as that research is going on, we also need to figure out why it works. Um, both so we understand mechanisms, so we can improve those mechanisms, also so we can begin looking at the library of, as Robert said, more than 100 synthetic cannabinoids that have been developed in test tubes, most of which have never been tried in people. There may be game-changing potential therapies in that library of synthetic cannabinoids, but we're not going to be able to choose which ones to study and how to study them unless we know how cannabinoids work, receptor structures, um, where cannabinoids fit into common illnesses that are associated with a significant loss of quality of life or mortality, ranging from Alzheimer's disease to cancer to autoimmune disorders. So we need some basic science along the way. And that's even more expensive sometimes than than clinical trials, but it's something that we really need to invest in. Okay, so you've all mentioned research and the funding required for that research in the first place. So is this uh, really an, an issue of public perspective on medical marijuana? Is is that how we go about encouraging this kind of research, is change the public perception? I think it's a, that's a tricky one. Um, I don't... I don't know because it's almost as if the public perception, you know, has gone so far in one direction so quickly that you know there's there hasn't been the re- the research needed. I, it, it's that's a tricky one for sure. I, if I can just to jump back on the last conversation um, about um, research and kind of just generally what we um, what we need to do in the future to dovetail on to what was said before. I think that. And I said this once before, but just to kind of narrow it down is that we have, you know, over 100 cannabinoids, not just synthetics. I'm talking about more than 100 cannabinoids within the plants that you get. Um, And 
Of those over 100, essentially 99.9 probably percent of the research is focused on two connects, so, and that's THC and CBD. And we just did a review of kind of secondary cannabinoids um, to see what about the other ones. Has there been what's been done at all? And we found just a handful of studies over the past five years that have even, you know, paid any attention to any other cannabinoid aside from THC and CBD. And that's just and same thing with terpenes, which is another thing to think about is that's kind of the smell and the flavor of the cannabis. And those are hypothesized to interact with cannabinoids in terms of efficacy. And again, nothing or hardly anything that's been done in this area. And so it's, I just wanted to stress in terms of this research, like this isn't alcohol, which is so much easier. <laughs> and, I don't, and I don't mean that from, you know, uh, I know alcohol research is hard, but the this is not, it's such a complex drug and it's going to, and because of that complexity and because of, you know, how many different types of marijuana there are um, and, you know, how varying these, these different ingredients matter so much in terms of effects, it's going to be, you know, the task of getting, you know, real research that, you know, we can trust in terms of moving forward with, understanding potential for medicinal use is going to take 10 times longer and 10 times more money than what would be expected for a normal substance. This is David. I, I honestly don't see public perception as being a way forward, it, only in the sense that I think in general, even if you're not wildly in favor of legalizing medical marijuana, most people, I think, are at least open to the need for research. So I don't think it's public perception that needs to change. There may be opportunities to use that public perception to drive the two barriers that I see. One is um, the fact that marijuana is a Schedule One substance, which, as we've discussed, makes research very, very difficult. And number two, the lack of federal funding. I think if we could either reschedule or deschedule marijuana entirely, and if we could make uh, national funding available, either through the national government in the United States or as a tax on medical marijuana sales, why not reserve 5% of all taxes on medical marijuana for research to demonstrate its effectiveness or to evaluate its risks? But I think if we can solve both of those issues, the regulatory barriers and the lack of funding, I think that's that will go a long way toward getting us the kind of evidence about risks and benefits that we need. And I think that's exactly why I mentioned public perception because those uh, both of the both of the things that you want are government decisions, and governments tend to do things uh, that voters want. So that might be an avenue. I agree, and I think we have potentially an opportunity in the U.S. at least this year. Um, there are obviously many things on the election docket in the presidential and uh, even state races. So I don't expect this to be a single issue campaign or even for medical marijuana to be at the top 10. Um, but I do think that there are some opportunities for uh, voters to begin to nudge candidates to make some promises. Neither one of those promises, by the way, is enormous. Research to establish risks and benefits of a substance that 
hundreds of thousands of Americans are using, um, descheduling something that really doesn't make sense in the first place. I mean, these are really pretty easy asks, much easier than than uh, things that presidential candidates are usually asked to take on. So I, I think the presidential candidates in particular in the U.S. should check those off their list relatively quickly and go on to, to more important and uh, uh, easier to, to deal with things. Thanks very much to all of you for being here. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you so much. We've linked to all of the panelists on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Also on our site are links to Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, so that you can follow show news and hear about upcoming episodes. And if you're a new listener, why not click the iTunes link where you can subscribe to the program or listen to all of the past episodes that you missed. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, click the links to Patreon to help support the show. Thanks for listening and see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Thank you.